The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, the Chinese government uh, this week announced that despite the ongoing pandemic, China would nonetheless post an impressive 2.3% GDP growth. Now, Compared to the U.S., Europe, Japan, and other major economies, that's an amazing number given the economic disruption that we've all endured due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But a lot of economists are very skeptical of that number and how China got there. Uh, Michael Pettis, who's a guy that I follow very closely, he's a well-known Peking University economist. He ripped the data piece to pieces. In a fascinating Twitter thread this week, He basically said that China got that number by juicing the economy with lots and lots of stimulus. And what he said, and I'll quote here from his Twitter thread, quote, unleashing enough of the unhealthy, non-productive growth it has long tried to constrain, basically real estate and infrastructure investment, in order to achieve as much economic activity as it needed for domestic political ends. So, Kobus, the point here is that the Chinese economy may not be as healthy as the government is saying and as it seems to the outside world, and that appears to be having an impact on its overseas lending as we've seen a dramatic slowdown over the past year, raising some questions as to whether or not Xi Jinping's famed Belt and Road Initiative may now be in jeopardy. Now, let's just give some context here to how enormous China's overseas lending has become over the past, say, 15, 20 years. Consider this, lending by China's two largest policy banks, now that's the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank, totaled $462 billion between 2008 and 2019. Now, that is just shy of the $467 billion lent by the World Bank to low- and middle-income countries during that same period. So China is basically you know, lending about the same amount of money as the World Bank. So, Kobus, if this is in fact going down, and if Chinese lending is diminishing as much as we suspect it might be, it's going to have an enormous impact. Yes, it's going to be massive. Keep in mind that over the last the last 10, 15 years, the world has gotten used to China as this, this emerging major financer. Um, and to a large extent, governments in, in the global south have kind of adjusted to that reality. So now they're going to have to adjust to a, a new reality. And I think, I think no one really is sure what that reality will actually look like. Because it's one thing to say that China is reducing lending. It's a different thing to, to actually start getting into what that reduction is going to look like, what they're going to fund and what they're Stopping funding and you know kind of and, and how those choices are made. So so it's 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 a it's a really a new world I think. Now this whole discussion about Chinese overseas lending really picked up pace back in December when Boston University's Global Development Policy Center published a new database that tracks China's overseas development finance. Now this then on the day that it ran this then sparked a story in the Financial Times that got a lot of people's attention and here's the headline. China curtails overseas lending in face of geopolitical backlash. And boy, oh boy, on Twitter, that thing just took off. 
And the key finding in the FT article and also by Boston University that got a lot of people's attention was lending by two of China's largest policy banks, as we said, that CDB and Exim Bank, collapsed from a peak of $75 billion in 2016 to just $4 billion in, that was in 2019. Uh, that represents a stunning 94% plunge in lending. So, wow, that is a very, very big number. If that is, in fact, the reality that we're dealing with, as Kobus mentioned, it is a significant change. So we wanted to kind of better understand the data set, how the BU team got to those numbers. So we were very excited to have on the show for the first time uh, Rebecca Ray, who is a senior academic researcher at the Global Development Policy Center's Global Economic Governance Initiative, and also Kevin Gallagher, who's a professor of global development policy at Boston University's Frederick Pardee School of Global Studies, where he directs the Global Development Policy Center. And he's the author or co-author of six books, including most recently The China Triangle, Latin America's China Boom, and The Fate of the Washington Consensus. A very good morning to you, Kevin and Rebecca. Good morning to you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us on. It's fantastic to have both of you on to talk about this. It's such an interesting topic because there's a lot going on. You have sparked a very heated discussion, some of it productive, some of it not so productive. Kevin, let's start with you and just kind of give us the headline Beyond, you know, that number really caught a lot of people's attention from $75 billion to $4 billion. Is that what we should be taking away from your new database? To us, this it's the big story is the scale more than the variation. The scale of $462 billion since 2008 is, is really unprecedented in global history. As you noted, it's basically the same level that the World Bank has started to, uh, has lent around the world during the same period. But yes, we do see a cascading down from 2016 uh, through 2019 for a, vari a variety of reasons. Um, but we're not so sure that the BRI and Chinese overseas lending are going any away anytime soon. There's a number of factors that have, uh, have led it to tighten up. And if Michael Pettis is right, uh, and China continues the model that they have, I think we might even see an uptick. So um, you mentioned that there's a variety of reasons for this decline. Like, Can you unpack what, what some of those are? Yeah, there's a number of, uh, of things on the China end and some things on the, ho on the, on the borrowing country end. On the China end, uh, there's been a lot of uncertainty about uh, international economic affairs in China ever since uh, outgoing President Trump uh, started a trade war with China. That brings a lot of uncertainty into markets and uh, timidity about uh, overseas in investment, um, which has shrunk their exports, which is the source of the foreign exchange for all of the overseas investment that they're doing. Almost all of China's overseas um, lending is dollar-denominated. Um, and so there's been when China really launched onto the world with all of this finance, they had a trade surplus uh, or a current account surplus of close to 10% of GDP. But in 2017, 2018, 2019, it started to get into uh, close, close to zero. So that, that surplus of dollars that they were generating uh, was not so uh, not so large, which is Michael Pettis, who you quote earlier, uh, and many of us uh, would agree that that's a good thing for the long-term health of the Chinese economy. It was too externally exposed and needs to focus more on domestic demand. Another uh, 
Another concern is about uh, the debt situation in the Chinese economy. China has a lot of uh, a lot of debt, uh, both from bank and non-bank exposures. And like in, to, in the late 1990s, when there was financial instability uh, in China, they relied on these kinds of policy banks to uh, put the fires out at home. So you had lots of uh, external uncertainty because of the trade war and uh, internal uncertainty because of financial instability. There was also some concern that uh, some of the countries were meeting their capacity. You know, they're almost expanding their, uh, excuse me, hitting the limit on their capacity to to borrow more. Uh, As Becky will note, our data set shows that uh, 62% of, of the financing goes just to 10 countries. Um, there's a myth out there that China gives these sort of sweetheart deals that are cheap, but in an era of quantitative easing, when interest rates were close to 1%, 2%, uh, China, these two banks uh, have often been more expensive than their counterparts. And so there's only been a certain set of countries that they've really been able to be competitive in. And those countries that hit their absorptive capacity even before uh, the COVID crisis. And many of the projects are... Uh, since China sort of outsources its uh, due diligence on social, environmental, and political risk, uh, many of the projects had had really become ensnared in long-term controversies where they thought that perhaps a project might start uh, really quick, uh, still in in the permitting stage or stalled because of uh, civil society protests or environmental concerns in and around it. So those are some of the things that the borrowing countries uh, uh, had slowed things down on. And China has this policy called, new policy called internal circulation, which is trying to diversify more towards domestic demand. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that issue of how unequal the lending is. You you published a graphic a couple weeks ago, which really showed how 10, 10 countries occupy about 60% of all the lending with Venezuela and Angola really being at the top of that, Pakistan also being a very big one. But when we talk about Africa having a China debt problem, that's actually not entirely correct, simply because it's really about five or six African countries that have a Chinese debt issue to deal with. Rebecca, let's come to you. Uh, How did you come about to these numbers? What are you calculating and what did you leave out? Because the methodology used to track some of this can be quite controversial and also prompt quite a bit of misunderstanding. And that led to a little bit of back and forth on Twitter when when your data set initially came out. Talk to us a little bit about what was in your calculation and what you left out. Absolutely. Uh, Our methodology brings really three innovations to the fore, which might um, which might explain some of uh, the unexpected findings. First of all, we developed, uh, in addition to drawing on data sets that already exist from our sister institutions, we also developed an in-house multilingual web scraper to draw out records that might not have surfaced in any other data set that already exists out there. Uh, And that's really a, a big innovation to start with. That alone brought in tens of thousands of records. Uh, We then combed through them all using our second innovation, which we call double verification. In order to be included in this data set, every loan needed to be able to be verified by a Chinese source and also by an international or host country source to ensure that projects weren't being inflated or announced early or announced multiple times as the terms of a loan changed over time. So one of the phenomena that we 
observe is uh, the tendency for host country politicians to play up a loan before it's signed or to overstate how large it'll be because they want to get publicity for the great money they're bringing into the country and the projects that they're planning. At the same time, we see opposition factions in host countries also wanting to inflate the numbers because of concerns about debt sustainability. And so we see both parties there, uh, both those in, in, in office and opposition parties and opposition civil society groups with a short-term uh, personal self-interest in inflating the numbers. So once we were able to pare it down by this double verification process, that yields the numbers that we're talking about. And then our third innovation, uh, and what I'm actually most proud of, is our geolocation of these projects. And so ultimately, we hope that this data set is useful to stakeholders at the national, local, and international levels in planning projects. Because of the geolocation aspect of this, we're able to uh, subject the data set to geospatial analysis of proximity to high-risk areas. So for example, our online interactive specifically narrows in on three kinds of sensitive territories that projects might overlap with or be close to. Those are indigenous or tribal lands, critical habitats, and national protected areas. Now, there are a host of other kinds of sensitive territories that might be useful for stakeholders at the national or regional level to look at. And so we hope that by geolocating all of this data precisely at the exact points of all the way along a particular road or all the way along a particular power, uh, power transmission project, uh, the perimeters of reservoirs that will be flooded, uh, all of that detailed geolocation information, we really hope it feeds into and empowers efforts by local stakeholders to plan the smartest projects possible, to subject projects to the appropriate levels of scrutiny and governance and oversights to ensure this win-win scenario that we hear about so much. So Kevin, um, when, when I saw that particular, the, the, this aspect that Rebecca was describing of, of the study, I was horrified to see how many of these projects were actually encroaching on tribal or protected or uh, land. Um, what did you make of that finding? Like my, my first kind of assumption was, oh, local governments are using the fact that there's relatively low Low, low oversight on these particular kind of impacts from the Chinese side to essentially stage land grabs or, or to, to essentially kind of encroach on on areas that they were that they were kind of using projects to encroach on areas that they that they had been planning to encroach on anyway. Um, am I misreading that? What like how how do you interpret that that part of the work? Well, the database, the China Overseas Development Finance database, is a interactive tool to do some looking. Uh, but we also have a team of scientists here at the GDP Center and have started to do some investigating as well. And one of the interesting things, uh, Becky's sort of been more on the lead of that, so I'll let her go deeper into the findings. One of the interesting things is that we actually find in general that uh, Chinese overseas development finance is not any more or less proximate to biodiv uh, areas of concern with biodiversity or indigenous people uh, than the World Bank is. But the World Bank has a set of built-in built social and environmental safeguards that uh, try to anticipate, prevent, and mitigate some of these things, whereas China has something called a country systems approach where they ask their lenders to adhere to host country standards. In some countries, host countries don't have those standards, and in some countries, they let them go by the wayside because they need the infrastructure so badly. Uh, this is a... We, 
this is a public good, this uh, database, uh, and we uh, hope the folks can do all sorts of uh, local and global analyses around the, around this level because, as Becky said, one of the key contributions is uh, – is the fact that we've spatially located all the data. I think one thing I just want to be clear about that, uh, that Becky didn't highlight is that what the data set tracks is Chinese overseas policy bank lending. China has two policy banks that work globally, the, the China Development Bank and the Export-Import Bank of China. These are have public policy objectives to go overseas, be leaders on the Belt Road Initiative, uh, so that commercial finance and foreign direct investment and so forth can, can follow. The data set does not track what China designates as commercial finance, such as the Bank of China, ICBC, uh, etc. And it also does not track foreign direct investment, such as Sinook uh, or Huawei's uh, individual investments uh, or loans to specific, uh, specific countries. So does that provide an incomplete picture then of what China's doing overseas? Because one of your critics, they said that China's lending is changing, but it's not necessarily going down. And what they were saying was because that a lot of loans are now coming from state-owned enterprises or commercial banks or semi-national banks like ICBC, you know, that behave like commercial banks but are still government controlled, that by only focusing on the policy banks, it's only a partial picture. How do you respond to that criticism, Kevin? Yeah, there was some confusion in the beginning about what the database is and isn't. And, and to be clear, we are just tracking policy banks. And it uh, that's sort of our niche in this global ecosystem. Uh, our center has been researching the World Bank, the uh German Development Bank and those kinds of institutions for quite a long time. And then, of course, when these two banks on the China end became so big, uh, we actually created a whole program just around examining Chinese overseas development finance. And so that's sort of what we're experts on. And we see ourselves as part of a global ecosystem of researchers. Some of them are looking at uh, policy banks. Some of them are looking at foreign investments. Some of them are uh, are working at the commercial banks. Uh, we we couldn't, couldn't do everything. Um, and it clearly really isn't uh, the whole picture. What's interesting, however, um, where there is data and there's data that's spotty on commercial finance and foreign direct investment, but um, our go-to source for Africa is the Sice Carey Group at Johns Hopkins. And if you look at their economic bulletins and their data sets over the past couple of years, and they do track policy banks, commercial banks, and foreign investment, uh, and the patterns are exactly what you uh, what you find for uh, in our data set, um, even for those other two entities uh, during the same year same year period, a, b- a big peak in 2016, and a cascading uh, thereafter for policy banks, commercial banks, and foreign investment. Um, Rebecca, this, this data came out at a, at a particularly kind of fraught moment in relation to Chinese lending due to the, the economic um, impact of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and then the ongoing wrangling in the G20 and other bodies in, in trying to, to, to arrange meaningful debt relief, um, a process during which China has been quite criticized, you know, among others for for not not making their, their debt relief negotiations more transparent. Um, what were your thoughts? You know, as you were working on this on this work while this kind of international crisis was was un- unfurling, like what kind of perspective did it give you on this on this wider debate? As you say, we're in a very important moment globally to think about uh, sovereign debt and where we go from here. Sovereign debt restructuring, but also in addition, as we the world look towards rebuilding from this COVID crisis. As as you said, Cobus, I believe on a, on a recent. 
podcast episode, Africa is facing its first recession in 25 years, and how it chooses to rebuild from that recession will be paramount to laying the groundwork for what the next expansion, what the next business cycle will look like. And policy banks and development banks in general have such a crucial role to play in determining the shape of economic expansion, right? That's why they exist. That's why our our, our theoretical ancestors in economics first uh, put forth the idea of development banks to be able to create markets in sustainable or in inclusive development strategies before commercial lenders want to go in that direction. And so at this pivot point where we find ourselves globally in the economic heart of the economic crisis brought to us by COVID, it's our chance to think about what direction we want to go in as we rebuild. And it's our hope that by having a geolocated data set of Chinese policy bank finance, we can contribute to a conversation about what kind of projects do we want financed? What kind of projects do we want our governments pursuing uh, to help us build our way back out of this crisis? Do we want projects that uh, threaten critical habitats or threaten national protected areas or or threaten set-aside areas for indigenous and tribal communities? Uh, Or do we want the kind of due diligence that allows for long-term planning, uh, perhaps slower growth at the onset because it takes longer to get good due diligence off the ground, but can pay dividends for much longer into the future because it's more resilient? Um, So that's the kind of thought process that we put into putting together this data set. Now, of course, looking at, as you say, debt sustainability issues um, and debt renegotiation issues uh, is also something we hope this data set will be able to be a tool for. Because, for example, what rises to the surface is that there are just a few countries that are so heavily represented. Uh, Angola alone accounts for over a quarter of all of the lending to Africa. Uh, So hopefully it can help direct policymakers and planners and and multilateral bodies even to think about where should our attention be focused when we look at um, managing this portfolio of debt-based development projects. Becky, what you've touched on is whether China is a responsible lender and a responsible actor. And that's been a very important theme in the discussion about Chinese lending, not just in Africa, but in many parts of the world. And I'm curious to get your take as a researcher who kind of focuses on this much more closely than anybody else does. People like David Malpass, who's the president of the World Bank, has been one of China's biggest critics in saying that there hasn't been enough transparency, they've not been forthright enough in the G20 DSSI project, that's the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, and then obviously the White House, uh, and this is not even a partisan issue in the United States, this is one of the few issues that both Republicans and Democrats universally agree on, that China's not a responsible actor when it comes to lending. The debt trap narrative, of course, is, is quite pervasive. And when we look at what's been going on over the past six weeks, beginning in in Zambia, then moving to Angola, and now the debt restructuring negotiations in Kenya, the Chinese are not transparent. They don't communicate what's been going on. Uh, people on Wall Street and in the city in London complain that they don't have the data about the exposure of Chinese debt in Zambia, for example, and what's going on. So talk to us about whether or not China behaves like a responsible lender, uh, or is it more or less, or is it somehow different than other lenders? How does it f- compare and contrast with other comparable state actors that way? 
Well, we wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't if it wasn't uh, if if the Chinese were more transparent. Uh, as academics, what we like to do better is to uh, work with established data and do analysis with it. But um, for years, so many people were uh, telling stories about Chinese overseas lending without any data to back it up. And so our whole family of data sets, I should I should note, we have this China Overseas Development Finance data set. We have one called China's Global Power that looks at Chinese uh, commercial and uh, foreign direct investment and policy bank finance and, and electricity power plants around the world. We have another one with the Inter-American Dialogue on China-Latin America. Um, the, the whole purpose of this is to try to create better transparency, and we we pray for the day when China will just start to uh, uh, list all this uh, on on their web pages in in the manner that say the the World Bank does in its Open Data Initiative. That said, um, after the World Bank and a couple of those institutions, um, there isn't anyone in the West who's really leading by example. We've tried to do comparative analyses with the uh, with the German Development Bank, with the French Development Bank, with the Japanese Development Bank, with the United States Export-Import Bank, and OPIC. And you almost have to use the same artistic uh, investigation methods that we use for China that you have to do for many in the West. And um, so it's the, the whole China responsibility and debt question is, uh, is, is a big one. I think now we no longer have to debate the debt trap diplomacy. I think that's been debunked a uh, hundred times over, and you folks in your newsletter have been smart to to uh, keep up on that literature and to continue to uh, to keep up on it. Um, but on China's overseas lending, uh, you have to ask relative to what, and so you know, especially in Africa. There's about five, you know, in 2019, there's about 500 billion dollars in uh, in outstanding debt. The largest amount of it was from international financial institutions like the World Bank and uh, the International Monetary Fund. And second were private bondholders and commercial banks. And third were bilateral uh, lenders, of which China is the largest. For Africa, it's about it's about 20 percent. Um, China is filling a huge infrastructure gap uh, around the world. So on that level, it's it's pretty responsible. A lot of the uh, international financial institutions have largely retreated from that sector uh, in the 80s and 90s in the favor of structural adjustment, which I think the academic evidence shows that was not very helpful for these regions. Um, and because the regions weren't, especially in Africa, weren't growing so well, the private sector was very scared and very reluctant to move into infrastructure. So I think we have to uh, give them big points for moving into infrastructure, trying to fill the infrastructure gap. Some of our research at the center has been concerned about the quality of that infrastructure. Some of it is skewed towards fossil fuels, especially coal in southern Africa. Um, and any new investment in coal uh, in the past couple of years will not be cost effective over the 40, 50 year life of the plant. And that, that could cause uh, stranded assets in the, in the host country uh, and make it more difficult for China to get paid back. So there hasn't been a lot of uh, uh, transparency across the board. Um, and in sovereign debt uh, restructuring negotiations, uh, that's always the case as well, especially in the private sector. I think the Paris Club has set a good example about being transparent about some of the terms. But uh, the world isn't that simple anymore. In the debt crises in the 80s and 90s, you could get the Paris Club and a couple commercial banks together and make them uh, share their information. Now we're talking about 
literally thousands of bondholders uh, that'll hold debt in a particular place, um, represented by many different firms that are very unwilling to share these things. Uh, the Paris Club still does lead by example and be fairly transparent, although not necessarily the institutions uh, on a day in and by day out basis, like I noted with uh, with the U.S. Export Import Bank and, the, and OPIC. It's our hope that someday this sector will be less endemically prone to problems with transparency, but national development banks around the world struggle with this. Not just China, but also, as Kevin said, European development banks. We also see it in multilateral development banks, especially ones that are newer, even though they they can be as large as some of the the legacy ones. I'm thinking particularly of multilateral development banks that are uh, based in the global south that do such tremendously important work of filling a gap of what isn't financed by uh, development banks based in the north. So, for example, the Development Bank of Latin America uh, and the Islamic Development Bank, neither one of which have any AAA bond rated members. So it's so important that these uh, regional development banks have emerged to fill gaps that they see not being filled by the global multilateral development bank infrastructure. However, transparency is an endemic problem in the sector. And so we started focusing on Chinese policy bank lending specifically because of how large it is, how important it is, and how quickly it came on the scene, not because they're uniquely uh, a not because they're unique, uniquely hard to get information about. So we certainly hope that our colleagues in other academic institutions in this ecosystem of researchers that Kevin mentioned uh, might do similar work about other development banks who might be the most important lender in their country or their region. So this is just one contribution hoping to close a transparency gap that is absolutely endemic to this crucial sector of policy lending. You know, policy lending and development lending is supposed to be the people's lending, right? It's It has a goal of development-oriented, policy-oriented lending to build the economic growth of the future and shape it. And without that transparency, it's extremely hard to put in place the due diligence that's necessary to make sure that lending does support the kind of long-term economic growth that is sustainable and inclusive that we all want. Um, I would say also that um, without this kind of transparency, um, it's extremely hard to rely on country systems. So as Kevin mentioned earlier, China relies on country systems, host country systems, for governance of environmental and social aspects of their lending. But that, of course, requires a certain amount of public participation, and that's very hard to accomplish without transparency. And so that combination of a lack of transparency and a relying on host country systems can sometimes create situations in which uh, projects don't receive sufficient due diligence and can have to end up being postponed or canceled or get bogged down in local conflicts. Um, And we hope that by geolocating this data set, we can help cut through some of those clouds. So to give a few African examples, one that stands out that's had a bit of controversy is Ethiopia's Kuraz Sugar Factory in the Omo Valley. It's in tribal lands. It's in a national protected area, which you can see on our interactive. Uh, And there's been a tremendous amount of tribal displacement based on it. Um, And conflict that's arisen, that's bogged down the project. It's not good for the local government. It's not good for the lender. It's not good for the community to have those kinds of delays and those kinds of conflicts, which we hope can be avoided with a bit more transparency. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Wits University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. Kevin, I, I was wondering, like, which which cues you think um, developing world governments and particularly African governments should take from this wider trend of of, a de- of this big decrease in in Chinese lending? Just to, to give it context, like this this week, um, I was sitting in on a, on a webinar um, run by the African Union's Program for Infrastructure Development in Africa, and they go go go, they're moving ahead, they 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 kind of they're implementing all of these tools to 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 um, to to smooth due diligence processes to to kind of make it easier to move projects towards the green light stages they're pushing very hard for public private partnerships um, for infrastructure funding they didn't seem particularly worried about a kind of a, a, a sizable kind of de- decrease in Chinese lending if you were to like you know speak with some of those those stakeholders what would you advise them you know in in their future planning in relation to these trends well, I think uh, the big lesson of, of the COVID crisis uh, and the, the boom and bust cycles that we've had in this, kind of cri- uh, in this kind of finance for a long time is that quality is better than quantity. And uh, if you can't manage high, high levels when they're surging in uh, or the aftermath of them uh, when you have uh, debt distress, uh, uh, what good is it? And so I think it's great that all these countries are trying to come together and try to get the pol- and put together the right kind of host country policies to a attract, but to b they need to work harder on the due diligence to attract less risky finance. This needs to be done on both ends, the Chinese end and the host country end. But China does have a, an admirable overarching foreign policy not to interfere into the domestic policies of countries, and so countries need their own China plan. And Chinese institutions are unique and different from many of the others, uh, and they need to be treated and engaged with differently. And so just uh, just doing anything you can to get any project possible uh, isn't strategic. What we found is that some countries that have been strategic with China have uh, have really gotten some great projects. Uh, Argentina uh, negotiated with China the well, the largest solar power plant uh, in in Latin America. Um, if you just say, hey, I, I'm looking for energy, maybe China will say, well, we've got a overcapacity in coal here and we're trying to clean up on climate change here in the host country. Why don't, uh, why don't you take some coal plants? But if you're strategic and uh, you want to put things in the right places and do things the right way, what we find that China is also willing to comply. Um, but you need your own plan. So it's great that there's an effort across the continent to try to maximize the amount, but you also have to maximize the the quality. Um, countries need to be putting together better debt sustainability arrangements, better understandings of, uh, of the long-term costs and benefits of things like coal plants um, and uh, social and environmental safeguards along the lines that Becky's been talking about with in terms of to what extent is this going to uh, abut uh, and infringe upon uh, local communities that could threaten the livelihood and fin- financial sustainability of a project. It's so interesting that you bring that up because it's one of the points that we've made uh, throughout the years on our podcast about knowing what you want to get out of China, having a China policy, understanding how to leverage the BRI for your best interest, depending on what country you come from, 
and not necessarily letting China dictate the terms of all the deals. So it's very interesting for you to say that. Uh, Becky, I'd like to get a sense from you what the reaction was uh, from various stakeholders when your data came out. Let's let's kind of put the academic community aside for, for now. Uh, but did you hear anything from, say, the Chinese policy banks themselves, the Chinese embassy in Washington? Uh, I'd be interested to hear if you if the U.S. government uh, reached out and, and, and kind of said this confirms or denies or, or challenges some of the perceptions. What reactions did you get from non-academic stakeholders? The primary reaction that I've gotten has been from uh, colleagues in civil society and in community organization groups in host countries, actually, who are hoping for uh, to be able to use this data for their own planning process. And that's really encouraging to me to see communities who are affected by uh, fi- international finance, but who don't always have a seat at the table in helping direct that finance, really be empowered to uh, get involved in the process to understand uh where exactly these projects are planned to go for those that haven't been built yet uh, to be able to take a larger role in that process. And that's that's so encouraging to me. Uh, and so that's that's really my, my favorite kind of outreach that's happened uh, since we came out with this data. And I certainly hope it in, it, it continues. So uh, I've been um, in communication with, with policymaking act, uh, actors as well as civil society actors and a variety of host countries who are hoping to be able to put this data set to used to make the best decisions possible. And and that's exactly what we want. Kevin, have you heard from the Chinese on this as to whether or not you're in the ballpark? Again, you were guessing in some of this stuff because of the lack of transparency. Did anybody from, again, the Chinese embassy policy banks, the Chinese state say, you're off, you're close, you know, did you get any feedback? The phone is definitely ringing off the hook. Uh, We've done briefings and have a schedule of them for civil society organizations, countless journalists, and uh, across the entire U.S. government. And we did that uh, when there was an old government. Today is Inauguration Day, and I'm sure we'll be engaging with the new U.S. government. This time, thus far, we have not received specific engagement from the Chinese government. Uh, A few years ago, when we released something called the China's Global Energy Finance Database, uh, there was also an article about it in the Financial Times in their Chinese edition. And uh, some of us were were sort of called in and told almost exactly where we were right and where we were wrong. And the great thing about our, our data is that we're, we just don't do this and send it out there. We're continually, continuously uh, updating and coming up with uh, new updates on it. So uh, we'll, we come out with new data sets every year. We're about to come out with a couple more on Latin America and energy. And so when we find out about something that we missed or something that was there that was smaller uh, or something that was there that was bigger, we correct it in the next year's data. So the Chinese helped us with that uh, a few years ago, but we have not engaged. They haven't, they haven't reached out uh, at the governmental level uh, yet, but we'd be happy to, to uh, help them, have them uh, set the record straight. Well, we have quite a few listeners in the Chinese Policy Bank community and in the uh, inside the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who subscribe to our newsletter and listen to the podcast. So we'll kind of put a call out to say, you know, call Kevin if you, uh, <laughs> if you want to call him directly if you have any questions. Kobus, uh, last question to you. Rebecca, um, if, like, if if you look at that, this this these trends in in a very wide context, where kind of how does it make you think about the the how the BRI is going to develop in, over the next the next ten years or so? I mean, you know, 
like officially infrastructure is only one of the five the so-called five connectivities that that is being pushed in 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 the BRI but it's a major one and it's one that 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 tends to be get, get to get a lot more attention than the other the other four um so did you see a kind of a that is 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 this shift in lending is that prefiguring a, a, a wider shift in in how the BRI is going to be rolled out difficult question i know oh it's, but it's a great question um I want to touch back on something that's already been mentioned so far in this episode, which is the importance of host countries having a China strategy. And the reason I bring that up is that we see the sectoral breakdown of Chinese policy bank financing, depending not only on uh, what China has capacity for, what China has a unique technological advantage in, uh, like, for example, long distance electoral, uh, electrical grid connections, that's a technological advantage that China has, but also what host countries are specifically asking for. And so we see, for example, regional fora, uh, China arrives with a checkbook and, and takes and, and takes requests, right? Um, and very often what surfaces in those encounters are uh, energy and infrastructure and connectivity projects that host country governments have had on the shelf, sometimes for decades, uh, without having been able to really push them forward due to a variety of circumstances that may involve access to capital or, or it may involve due diligence steps that these projects weren't able to pass through. But for a variety of reasons, um, China arriving on the scene allows those projects to move forward. And so rather than thinking of it as um, a, a model in which China has a plan <laughs> to connect everyone, it may be more realistic in some instances to think of it as a process through which China is taking requests <laughs> um, and prioritizing certainly certain sectors um, and prioritizing certain areas. Uh, and so I am, my area of expertise is China and Latin America. I've spent the last seven years researching and writing about uh, qualitatively and quantitatively that particular relationship. And we see a pattern over and over in which uh, national governments bring to China their favorite pet projects that haven't been able to be financed elsewhere. Uh, and so what really determines the direction of Chinese finance then is the priorities of the host governments and if they have if they have a green and inclusive development agenda that is resilient and long-term focused and that relies on projects that might roll out slowly but pay more dividends over time whether it's green energy or whether it's climate resilient strategies um, we don't see china balking at that we see china absolutely willing to support that kevin mentioned uh the region latin american region's largest solar plant financed by china and argentina the world's highest and most efficient wind farm is also financed by china in ecuador uh, we certainly don't see a resistance to that kind of project but it has to be led by the local government they need to have their own china strategy as eric said Kevin, very quickly before we go, one last question that just popped into to my head here. Listen, this year is going to be the Triennial Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We do know that it will take place in Dakar, although I am quite skeptical that Xi Jinping is going to get on a plane and go to Africa, even as the pandemic is winding down. So it might be online, but 
The headline from previous FOCAC summits has always been this giant, mega, massive number, $60 billion, $60 billion, $20 billion, and so forth. What are you thinking might come out of this year's FOCAC since development finance has always been a very big part of these financial packages at these kinds of summits? What would you expect to happen this year in light of the the findings that you found from the policy banks that play a critical role in all of this? Well, I should lead and say that the GDP Center is not uh, uh, the world's experts on China and and Africa relationship. Uh, We've built this data set largely based on our friends at Sice Carey who shared their data with us that we then uh, spatially located. And I always defer some of the political economy questions on China and Africa. But as an economist, one thing that I do know about Africa is that it needs capital now more than ever. The the African finance ministers have said they need $500 billion and they've asked for $100 billion in uh, debt relief. And so I do hope that there's a big number uh, that comes from China, uh, but that the countries uh, are are careful about how it how it's get used. Uh, Chinese development finance is sorely needed in the world economy. We face a 2.2% annual GDP gap in sustainable infrastructure financing. We're in a world that's trying to rapidly decarbonize and to try to uh, descale the rapid uh, inequality and polarization that's come around with it. Uh, we need infrastructure and we need it fast, uh, especially as uh, as the world economy has slowed down in 2020 more than any year since the Great Depression. It's the Chinese Overseas Development Finance Interactive Database. It's an absolutely essential tool if you're a researcher, a policymaker, an analyst, a journalist, and you want to find out what the Chinese are doing in terms of their overseas development finance from just the two largest policy banks. But those are enormous banks from the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank. And it's produced by the Global Development Policy Center at Boston University. Rebecca Ray is a senior academic researcher there and also on the team at the Global Economic Governance Initiative. And Kevin Gallagher is the director of the the Global Development Policy Center and also a professor of global development. Thank you both for taking the time to join us today and to help break this all down. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, Where can people find you, Kevin, on social media? And also tell us how to get to the Global Development Policy Center's website for newsletters and how to stay in touch with what the work you're doing there. Yeah, thanks, Eric. It's been great to talk to both of you folks. Um, You can go to www.bu.edu slash GDP. That's the GDP Center's webpage to find all of our reports and interactive data sets. I'm on Twitter at Kevin P. Gallagher, uh, and the GDP Center is at GDP underscore BU on Twitter. And Becky, how about you? I would encourage folks to go to bu.edu slash GDP slash CODF. That's for China's Overseas Development Finance, CODF. And that will take you directly to our online interactive map where you can really explore the sensitive territory overlap of this whole portfolio of finance. Uh, I'm also at Twitter, at BU Becky Ray. Okay, don't worry, everybody. You don't have to remember all the dots and slashes and Ws. I will put those in the show notes for everybody, including Becky and and Kevin's uh, Twitter addresses and their handles so that you can follow what they're reading and writing. Uh, Becky, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Kobes, I don't know what to say right now. I am just kind of fuming with frustration listening to Kevin and, and Becky. Really, I am just, I'm furious because 
When Kevin said that the Chinese are basically at the same level of transparency as the other state policy banks, not necessarily the multilateral policy banks, like or you know lending institutions like the World Bank or the Paris Club, but at you know we look at the German, the American, the French, and that they're at the same level. And the reason why that's so infuriating is because you would never know that from all of the moaning and groaning that these countries have done about Chinese transparency and the lack thereof. I mean, it is just insidious that they have the gall to be criticizing the Chinese over the lack of transparency when they themselves do not publish the loan terms for the rates, the loans, the terms, all of it, all the details about their loans. I looked for the rates on French concessional lending to Kenya on a recent multi-billion dollar deal. And I went onto their website for the French Development Agency and they just announced that they announced these deals, but they didn't give the term or the loans or the rates. I mean, listen, I'm not saying this to defend the Chinese, but it's complete BS and garbage that we tolerate the criticisms when they themselves are basically doing exactly the same thing. This is one of the reasons why development is such a nightmare and why, you know, kind of the global south is is, you know, kind of is up against such a such a struggle. Because it's not only that that these these loans are not transparent, is that is that they are they are constant like forms of gaslighting going on. You know, kind of by, by pretending, for example, that China is radically um, untransparent while while everyone else is somehow magically transparent. You know that 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 kind of that that kind of really misleading line you see you find it all the time, and it, it it makes it makes the entire process incredibly difficult, particularly for countries with low capacity. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, it's it's crazy. I have a challenge for everybody listening to the show that then the next time you hear an American diplomat or a French diplomat or from someone from the the British Foreign Commonwealth Office kind of rail on the lack of transparency in Chinese lending. Turn around and ask them, where do I find on your website, line by line, exactly what the interest rate and the terms are on concessional loans? Exactly. Let's go apples to apples in the comparison. And I have asked a number of development scholars and professionals and practitioners, where can I find this information? And nobody has been able to tell me. Kevin, who studies this for a living, and Rebecca as well, prior to the show, I asked them, I said, where do you find this? And they go, well, it doesn't really exist. There's bits and pieces of it spread around, but for the most part, there isn't a centralized database that says, here's what we've lent, here's what the interest rates are. And and the annoying thing about it is that me as a taxpayer, I feel that I have a right to know this, right? So it's not even just about pissing off the Chinese. I feel that I have a right to know that where my tax money is going and how much it's being spent. Now, again, maybe my rage here is misplaced and there's actually a database out there and somebody's going to send me a link to say, you know what, you dumb dumb, here's the link. You should have known this before you went on your little rant. That may be possible, so I put that out there as a disclaimer. But it is so frustrating that it is not easily accessible and understandable to the public and that they get away with the, the gall to be criticizing the Chinese on this. Again, I don't care about the Chinese in terms of they can defend themselves on this. I find the hypocrisy just appalling, absolutely appalling. 
Yeah, I mean it's it really is problematic. I mean what you know what what we've what we've suggested or what we what we called for before is that is that um recipient countries should should take a, a, a policy of radical transparency. Um and particularly that 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 a body like the the African Union should have a a, a full public database of all of the the kind of major loans coming to Africa from various institutions and countries. But of course we 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 know that that you know that, that there are many many incentives to towards you know kind of keeping these things opaque you know kind of in places like africa um you know the the other the other kind of option and i think that it's it's crazy that it is isn't already a thing is that the g20 should should you know kind of set up this kind of this kind of instrument um you know the, this this goes this is this would be in line with a billion different parts of g20 kind of you know kind of modus operandi like things that they're calling for all the time so you know kind of governance and transparency you say it we like to see it. Yeah. You know? And and you bring up a very interesting point about the host government or the borrower and their responsibilities here. Because as we found out from aid data, which is the research group at uh, William and Mary College, they've done some excellent research there. And they looked at a number of policy bank loan contracts. And one of the clauses that they found in those loan contracts is that there, the, the, the lack of transparency is subject to the laws of the local country, the borrowing country. So if the national legislature in African country X, ASEAN country Y, states that it is the requirement that we must publish the terms of this contract for public review and comment, then the Chinese will accommodate to that because it's in accordance with national laws. This is all part of China's non-interference mentality as well. So when yeah, we hear yeah. about... The, the, the tools are there. The tools you know, people are, are just there. Not using them. And they're not yeah. using them. And instead... They pile a dump truck back on the Chinese to say it's all your fault. Now, granted, the Chinese, let's let's not let them off the hook here. They are the one who insist on these non-disclosure agreements. They're the ones who have these opaque contracts. They're the ones who don't communicate at all in debt restructuring processes. This is one of the things that we've been tracking in our newsletter right now is looking at the Kenya debt restructuring talks and, you know, nothing. There's nothing out about Zambia. There's nothing out about Angola. This is all in this clubby, clubby, chubby, chubby world that we don't get to see. And to me, that is morally reprehensible when the fact is that it's Chinese taxpayer money. It's our taxpayer money because immediately after these debt restructuring deals, oftentimes the IMF or the World Bank comes in, as was the case in Angola recently, where after they finalized a three-year debt restructuring deal with the Chinese, then $487 million of IF money, IMF money started pouring in. That's your tax money, Cobus, and my tax money. We have a right to know what's going on. And the fact that there's no transparency on all sides, everybody's got their hands dirty on this. So there is no moral righteousness in any of this debate. So the next time you get into a debate about Chinese opacity, start hammering the, the African borrower, criticize the, the Western lender. As you pointed out, the G20 has something to do here as well. Everybody's got their hands dirty. It's just... This is an annoying debate. Yeah, you know, and, and you, will, you won't find institutions that pay more lip service to transparency and governance than these institutions, you know. So, <laughs> you know, like walk the walk. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you're right. The way someone has to lead by example. 
And the way it's led by example is maybe it's a small country like Botswana that does it, who has the reputation of the best governance in Africa. And they turn around and they say, this is what we're going to do. Welcome to our new debt you know, website. I will say, though, that, that there is a little bit of this in Nigeria, the debt management office. They deserve a lot of credit. Uh, they have been very, very transparent. They make these really wonderful graphics that kind of break down where they've borrowed their money, what it's going to, and it's very simple and easy to understand. That's really the model. So I, so Nigeria, they deserve some real well-earned credit uh, on doing that. We need to see a lot more of it, and we need to stop letting U.S. and European and Japanese uh, critics of the Chinese get by, because if they say one thing about the Chinese, you have to turn back around and say, what are you doing as well? So... Okay, I'm going to calm down at the end of this, but it just got me so worked up. Oh, my goodness. Uh, listen, this is the kind of, of stuff that we do every day in the newsletter. Kevin is a subscriber to our newsletter, so that's the kind of people that are reading it. And so I feel a lot of pressure every day to write stuff that is good enough for someone like Kevin to read. But we'd love for you to join our growing community of readers. Uh, subscriptions are super cheap. $7 for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. We basically are providing a daily rundown of everything that's going on in the China-Africa space, but increasingly now China in the global south. We're looking at what Huawei, for example, is doing in Ecuador, in what they're doing in Uzbekistan. We're connecting dots between loan debt for equity swaps in uh, Laos and then comparing that to what they're doing in Angola. So if you really want to try and connect the dots in places that are very disparate around the world, this newsletter is perfect for you. It cons consolidates all of the day's news analysis. A lot of the think tank reports that come out, we summarize that. So we're very proud of it. We put a lot of work into it. We'd love for you to join our community of readers. Again, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And again, subscriptions are super cheap. We wanted to make it accessible, but we're very proud of that. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>